0: Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia. I'm your host, Derek Lemons, Director of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology and Associate Professor of Religion. You're listening to season one, which is dedicated to the topic of rapid religious change. Today, we will hear Deborah Mason, share her thoughts on rapid religious change in a lecture entitled Tick-Tock, Tick-Tock, Time, Religion, and News.
1: It is my great pleasure to introduce uh, a former colleague and current friend, Dr. Deborah L. Mason. Um, Dr. Mason's among the leading thought leaders and entrepreneurs of how religion is portrayed in the news Dr. Mason currently serves as a 2018 to 20 fellow at the Center on Religion and the Professions at Harvard University, where she's co-teaching a course on religious literacy, journalism, and media entertainment. She is Professor Emerita at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, where she directed the Center on Religion and the Professions, a Pew Center of Excellence for 12 years, many of which I was also at Mizzou and was Deb's colleague. Um, Dr. Mason also played key roles in creating local online and nonprofit models of professional religion news, resources, and training. During her two decades leading the Religion News Association and as founding director of its nonprofit arm, Dr. Mason raised nearly $20 million via more than 75 successful grants for religion coverage, training, and tools. She built the largest body of resources on reporting religion for journalists by journalists, including the religionstylebook.com and religionlink.com. She's a former award-winning journalist herself, a frequent speaker at international events, and a scholar in the coverage of spirituality from origin to its emergence on digital platforms. Her published work includes investigating anti-LGBTQI plus hate, a reporting guide for journalists, and covering sexual and gender minorities and religion in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, She is a thoughtful scholar, a good friend, and I'm awfully glad to welcome her to Athens, Georgia for the first time. So ladies and gentlemen, Deborah Mason. So
2: the first thing I thought about when Derek asked me to talk about rapid religious change is I thought of marketing guru Dan Kennedy saying, which I actually have had on my bulletin board for many years, that the difference between salad and garbage is timing. Um, But I also was a little bit stumped uh, when Derek told me about the theme of rapid religious change or in other words why religions sometimes change quickly. And that's because one of the first lessons that I teach journalism students is that religions change slowly. (laughs) Um, While scholars measure time in eras, in these artificial measures of decades and centennials, journalists measure time in seconds. So today, journalists know that they have three to five seconds to grab their audience's attention. So how long is that? One, two, three, four, five, and they're gone. Not very long. That's how long before somebody decides to read your tweet, to watch your TikTok, to view your Instagram post or story, or to dive further into your news story. And this fact explains, of course, the plethora of attention-grabbing headlines that fill our feeds, our inboxes, and the news pages, such as this one uh, recently, the UK Army will use Kim Kardashian's assets to promote military service. Or, uh, if you want more time with your cat, try this. I did look at that story. Um <laughs> Now, not only do journalists only have seconds to grab your attention, but seconds spent on page, on a page, the time on site, is measured religiously as one of the major currencies of news these days. It's known as engagement, and it's measured in seconds. At Religion News Service, where I was publisher for several years, we were thrilled when our average time on site, our average engagement with popular stories, would be more than four minutes. That's huge. That's an enormous amount of time. According to one analytics company, the average time spent on an individual page on a news publisher's site is about two minutes. But most sites only merit about 20 seconds max of a reader's time. So this is quite different than the way that scholars mark time via eras, uh, as I mentioned, that that encompass decades, centuries, millennia, and so on. These artificial markers that describe the beginnings and ends of times, or other markers of trends of social and cultural phenomena. The late Phyllis Tickle, an astute observer of faith uh, in North America and she founded the Religion and Spirituality section of Publishers Weekly, which is an important trade publication that tracks book publishing. Uh, In her last book, she posited that uh, accelerated religious change occurs within the Abrahamic traditions uh, at least once every 500 years, and that we're in one such moment right now. She called our present era, uh, the great emergence. And she characterized this moment as one of the, those times of great change, particularly as it relates to Christianity. And uh, um, I'm going to be talking a lot about Western uh, notions and, and Christianity specifically. Um, and um, I just want to acknowledge that bias in, in, this, um, in this talk. So my own personal view is that such artificial placing of markers of time are rarely so meet. I mean, historians have acknowledged that for years, but Tickle does have a point. Um, her thesis is that we are in a period of rapid religious change uh, as evidence in rapid changes in worship, um, in non-denominationalism, in new means of spirituality, uh, in millennials and younger generations abandoning traditional Christianity and, and so forth. These are trends that anybody who's a watcher of religious trends or or, uh, pays attention to uh, Pew Research Center's uh, data is very familiar with. At the same time, we're seeing a desire to harken back to an authentic Christianity as embraced in the second and third uh, century and Tickle has other indicators of of her point that this is this era of rapid religious change. Um, But the point is that if we look at Western history uh, 500 years earlier, then of course we have the Reformation in the 16th century. And 500 years before that was the Great Schism in which Roman uh, Catholicism and Orthodoxy split. That was uh, 1051, the 11th century. And then 500 years before that was the fall of Rome. In 481, the Council of uh, Callien and uh, Gregory the Great in uh, 540 to 600 A.D. And then 500 years before that, we had the Great Transition, the change between the millennia uh, and the transition between A.D., Uh, in uh, BC. And Tickle also argues that this trend goes beyond Christianity uh, to Judaism and even Islam. And uh, 500 years before the birth of Jesus, you had uh, Babylonian captivity, the fall of Jerusalem, and another 500 years uh, prior to that, you had the Davidic dynasty. Now, Tickle made it clear that this thesis was pertinent only to the parts of the globe that were Latin in origin. Uh, in other words, she posited that there was something about Latin and the derivatives of Romance languages that somehow affected this pattern, and um, she wasn't necessarily clear on what it was. But but uh, she puts that caveat in, in place, and, and that is in fact one of my complaints about her thesis as it relates to today is that I don't think it does a good job of explaining the growth of Pentecostalism and evangelicalism in the Global South, uh, not to mention the, the failing to apply it to uh, Eastern or traditional faiths. But if we stay honed to that timeline and the parameters tickle set forth, the math anyways, It seems to work. Um, So as as I've thought about uh, Phyllis's work, I'm struck by, uh, at least for the last 1,000 years, how communication, journalism, and technology are inexorably intertwined, and in some cases may be the reason for some of these rapid uh, series of rapid religious change. Um, Ancient religion traditions, of course, uh, relied initially on oral traditions. And there's not much technological change required year upon year and century upon century uh, when you're retelling something orally, other than making sure it doesn't change or making sure it adapts to new languages and cultures of storytelling. Like oral storytelling, the slow, hand-copied process for committing oral traditions to stone or bark or part parchment was flawed and subject to the whims and fancies of mostly male scribes, which explains why some artists, perhaps expanding upon their creative license in decorating manuscripts, added such image as nuns filling their baskets with pickings from a tree plump with phalli. Uh, you medievalists out there, if there are any medievalists out there, you already know about the phallus tree. It's a real thing, but for the rest of you, just Google it, okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> But religious changes mushroomed quickly once the printing press emerged in Western culture and sacred texts uh, as they could be uh, reproduced in identical ways in vernacular languages. Finally, the public could bypass the priests and scholars uh, who previously held the keys to religious knowledge and authority. And that relationship between press and the relative rapid uh, emergence and diversity with in Protestantism is well known of course. Now that change that brought about Protestantism and its thousands of varieties also brought about the first mass-produced, uh, maybe mass is a little uh, uh, exaggeration, but the first uh, generally distributed secular news uh, entity pamphlet and also religious pamphlets. So uh, depending on how you define it, uh, the world's first newspaper is recognized as being printed in about 1605. That's a little bit over 150 years from when the first book, a Bible, came off of Gutenberg's printing press, and less than 100 years from when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on those Wittenberg Castle doors. But from the 1600s, the changes in journalism news and mass communication technology became steadfastly linked to religious change. So for example, as the printing presses became more affordable and they weren't controlled just by institutions, the printing of religious texts along with government notices were the two largest sources of paid income for early printing press uh, owners. That was particularly true in the colonial era. uh, And so of course, the the owners of these presses were the first gatekeepers of news because they were also the first news pamphlet and newspaper editors. A sure way to shut somebody up in those days was to burn down the building where the printing press was housed or throw them in jail. But similarly, it was vital that printing shop owners didn't run afoul of either the government or religious leaders upon whose investments they depended. Now, the history of journalism is in part the history of technological advances that helped journalists produce and distribute the news faster and faster, cutting the time it took to gather news, reproduce it, and get it to its audiences. Offset printing, that's the process of printing that used metal rollers instead of flat stone or wood panels, uh, was invented in the late 1800s. And again, uh, it cut down the time and notably the cost for publication. So for example, uh, new presses allowed the New York Tribune in the ni- 1870s to print 18,000 papers per hour. That was a huge increase in, in um, how much you could, you could spit out. So this new speed and associated cost reduction led to a plethora of publishing also in uh, religious organizations at the dawn of the 20th century. And they included, for instance, publishing materials from new religious groups like uh, Mary Baker Eddy's Church of Christ Scientist and the Jehovah Witnesses, among others, among that, uh, another time uh, when there was a lot of rapid religious change. In fact, uh, so many religious groups had communications officers and had publications uh, that the Religious Communicators Council was formed in 1929, and uh, that, was the, that is the oldest public relations association in the country. Now, of course, uh, printed materials took time to write, they took time to edit, to set onto the presses, and to distribute. But the time between an event and its reception by audiences miles away was erased via radio broadcasts. Pittsburgh radio station KDKA, I don't know why they weren't using W's back then on that part, but anyway, KDKA became the first commercial radio station. uh, And just a few months after its creation in 1920, the first religious broadcast aired in January 1921. And uh, as Peter Manseau, he's a really gifted writer, and he curates uh, religion for uh, the Smithsonian now, uh, as he wrote, um, quote, For a fleeting hour, once, once winter Sunday in 1921, a pious, infirm Massachusetts woman joined a religious community without leaving home. Her son had recently become a radio enthusiast, and though she had never imagined she would much, have much use for his wireless receiving set, he sat her down that evening, cupped two aluminum headphones over her ears. For, for, uh, from a hundred miles away, in Pittsburgh Calvary Episcopal Church, a congregation had just gathered for vespers in the presence of four microphones, arrayed to capture the sounds of the pastor, the chimes, the organ, and the choir. Then... Miraculously, she heard them. The use of radio by religious groups, of course, only grew, and about 10% of all early radio broadcast licenses were owned by religious groups. They brought religious events and proselytization instantaneously to their publics. Today, every world major religion has radio broadcasts somewhere in the world, everyone. Now, just as new technologies increased the immediacy by which they could reach audiences, they also grew the size of those audiences exponentially. But the use of technology then, as now, was not without its controversies. Father Charles Coughlin, a Detroit-based Roman Catholic priest, built an audience of an estimated 30 million listeners throughout the 1930s. But instead of religious speech, Coughlin hinted at attacks on Jewish bankers, Uh, he spewed pro-fascist and anti-Semitic rhetoric, and even included support for some of Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito's policies. Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration forced Coughlin off the air in 1939 and refused to allow him to use the U.S. Postal Service to distribute his newspaper, which focused largely on political and economic rhetoric. In part, in response to Coughlin and others uh, like him, the National Conference of Christian and Jews in 1934 became home to religion news service, The first, and to this day, only non-sectarian, religion-only wire service. So journalism continued to change faster and faster, incorporating more photos and covering more live events in the United States post-World War II. Beautiful four-color magazines like Life and Look joined Time and Newsweek in portraying religious growth throughout the United States. In 1949, when a young Billy Graham was conducting a tent crusade amidst nightly crowds in Los Angeles, newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst seems to have been impressed. He famously sent a two-word mandate to his network of news editors that they were to, quote, puff Graham. That's newspaper speak, meaning to give the strident preacher positive and prominent coverage. After that order from Hearst, reporters and photographers descended upon the nightly spectacle to record Graham's passionate orations. Soon after, features about Franklin appeared in Life, Time, Newsweek, and a host of other daily newspapers those journalists set the stage for Graham to become the nation's best known evangelist. That same year, in 1949, enough mainstream media journalists existed and were covering religion full-time that the Religion News Association, then known as the Religious Newswriters Association, was born. But as the uh, the timeline for technology sped up, religion and media began to diverge, especially as it pertained to news. Religious institutions expanded into television, creating news programming with a religious slant. Network television at the time, especially in the 50s and 60s, tightly regulated religious programming. But by the early 1970s, the first religious networks sprang up. Time played a role here too. Instead of being limited to the time and day and programming restrictions of ABC, NBC, and CBS, uh, cable and these new networks uh, gave freedom to religious groups to create whatever content they wanted without external ethical or professional restrictions. News on religious stations did not resemble news in secular mainstream outlets. A distrust between mainstream journalists and people of faith grew. In fact, studies show that the more religiously adherent a person is, the less likely they are to trust professional news. Distrust distrust was building in other areas too. Professional religion journalists were no longer content at receiving summaries of Roman Catholic bishop meetings via a monsignor. That's how uh, those changes in the mid-1960s, known as Vatican II, were communicated to journalists. Uh, Monsignor would come out and tell the journalists what happened that day, uh, and uh, they weren't allowed to observe any of it or talk to uh, the individuals involved. But after a journalist, this is a I knew this person who did this. After a journalist was caught literally hiding behind the curtains at a U.S. conference of Catholic bishop meetings in the early 1970s, the U.S. bishops began opening up portions of their meetings. This distrust that began to fray the relationships between people of faith and journalists started to extend to the academy as well. As the, nation's most relig- As the nation's religious diversity grew following changes to the 1965 Immigration Act that opened up immigration to Asian countries, the gaps in religious knowledge by scholars and among journalists grew. Thus, a crisis in religious literacy was born. And uh, for much of the rest of this talk, I'm gonna talk about, uh, talk about that crisis in religious literacy. The World Trade Center attacks ripped open the gulf between learned religious knowledge and journalistic coverage of Islam. Although journalists who specialized in coverage of religion generally got it correct, in those early days, after 9-11, most articles were not being written by religion journalists. Many articles contributed to false impressions and stereotypes of Muslims, Hard work by Muslim advocacy groups and religion scholars helped bridge that knowledge gap over the past 19 years. But networks of professional Islamophobes who produce content on sympathetic networks continue to feed gross misconceptions and stereotypes. With this and other religiously-fueled hate speech spiking in record levels in recent years, the issue of religious literacy has renewed fervency in the United States. Those whose concerns are piqued uh, catch signals of interest uh, among scholars, among centers, academic centers, within foundations, donors, and NGOs. Such new energy toward an intransigent problem, however, collides with the crisis found within major US news companies. Surveys show nearly four out of five people no longer trust the media, an imprecise term that conflates the likes of alt-right Breitbart, entertainment gossip site TMZ, and reputable news companies like the Boston Globe, NPR, Wall Street Journal, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Indeed, assessments of the problem must include an understanding of the de-evolution of daily journalism and its impact on the religion beat. What we used to call daily, weekly, and monthly print news outlets, news radio, public media, educational television, have all, for the most part, abandoned employing full-time specialists in religion news. Although precision in tracking such things does not exist, metropolitan daily memberships uh, have plummeted at the Professional Association for Religion Beat Reporters, the Religion News Association, Newspapers and news sites as varied as Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, Denver, Des Moines, Phoenix, San Diego, Kansas City, St. Louis, Indianapolis, you name it. Almost very few major metropolitan news organizations uh, have a full-time religion reporter. The Atlanta Journal Constitution has a part-time person, Sheila Poole. (coughs) Um, At smaller media markets, the problem is worse Uh, And although overall membership in the Religion News Association uh, remains fairly constant, its fastest growing category uh, is among freelance journalists. So if we look at the industry as a whole, the picture is sobering. And I can tell you this as the mother of three kids— who all have their journalism degree or are pursuing their journalism degree, and two of the three are dating journalists or journalism students. So um, this is very personal to me. The newspaper chain McClatchy filed for bankruptcy earlier this month. McClatchy owns news outlets in 14 states, including the Kansas City Star, Miami Herald, Charlotte Observer, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and the Sacramento Bee. Between 1970 and 2016, which was the last year the American Society of News Editors quit counting, 500 or so dailies went out of business. The rest cut news coverage or stopped uh, publishing a print edition. Newspaper revenues declined dramatically between 2008 and 2018. That's uh, the most recent year we have complete data. Uh, Advertising revenue fell roughly from uh, $38 billion in 2008 to just over $14 billion 10 years later. That's a 62% decline. Newsroom employment in U.S. news Uh, at U.S. newspapers dropped by nearly half, or 47%, between those same markers, 2008, 2018, from about 71,000 workers to 38,000 workers. Uh, Layoffs continue to pummel the U.S. newspapers. Roughly a quarter of papers, with the average Sunday circulation of 50,000 or more, experienced layoffs in 2018. And perhaps most distressing, uh, Americans have little awareness of the financial challenges that face local newsrooms, uh, according to a 2018 uh, survey. Um, About 71% of U.S. adults believe that their local news media are doing well financially, uh, even as only 14% say that they have paid for local news themselves in the past year, whether through subscribing or donating or becoming a member. Although the New York Times finally um, makes makes actually makes quite a bit of money online, I think uh, in 2018 it made over uh, 700 million dollars. Its cooking app and its crossword puzzle app are among the biggest sources of its online subscription revenue, not news. The core problem is that online advertising pays pennies compared to the print advertising, and. Uh, and, and that's true across, uh, across the board. Now we would be remiss if we didn't close with the um, enormous growth of social media and of course the outsized role that it plays in religious change, religious conformity, and as a magnet for attention. One small indicator of, you've all seen these indicators of the growth of these, but um, uh, roughly 300 hours of video Is uploaded to YouTube every minute, 300 hours. YouTube is now the second largest search engine engine, um, on the internet after Google. On Facebook, Reddit, and other sites, groups that aren't connected by geography but are connected by this moment in time, and share uh, shared, shared tone. Um, find community with others, whether they're subversive white nationalists or anti-Semites or Islamophobes, or uh, decentralized groups like Wiccans or intersectional groups like one of my students at Harvard, a Catholic nun who's uh, in her early 30s. They have found like-minded individuals in the bowels of the internet. Rituals and practices and theologies and myths become shared and debated and rejected or crowned as authoritative. Now, we haven't talked about global trends and the ways that journalism and religion are intertwined uh, there, or the Trump bump, uh, which is when the New York Times added 132,000 new subscribers within, within three weeks of Trump's election. But before I close, I I do want to say a word about TikTok, the addictive latest entry into time-sucking apps. Uh, And uh, it's become one of the most infectious apps for uh, those under 18. Uh, TikTok has been the number one app download on Apple since its um, origin in 2014. It's uh, available in 75 languages, and it's owned by a Chinese company. Uh, it lets users, if you don't know about TikTok, it lets users record and share up to 15 seconds, and uh, it makes the use of adding music very easy. There are a lot of lip syncing on it or, uh, uh, or short skit videos. So uh, the religion hashtag, there's a religion hashtag on TikTok. It shows such things as uh, a Passover Seder uh, being done to a rap artist's song as an accompaniment, for example. So, I I think that uh, TikTok captures and is a good example of how technology, not journalism really per se, although BuzzFeed uh, News, BuzzFeed News is hiring uh, individuals to work on its uh, TikTok app, uh, TikTok content. Uh, So, news organizations are using TikTok. Um, But it's a really good uh, example, I think, of how technology can affect religion and religion affects the use of technology. So for example, uh, I think what first grabbed my attention on TikTok TikTok, uh, on the uh, religion hashtag uh, was a 14-year-old Amish uh, girl who... uh, well, uh, at one point she was explaining how she had taken off a part of the wheels of her buggy. She was in her buggy. She was explaining how she had taken off a part of the wheels of the buggy because uh, it made so much noise when she was on TikTok. So she had, uh, you know, she's explaining this. And uh, and there are other um, other videos of Amish. Now, these, these are not, mind you, these are not the old, old order Amish that I have about 25 minutes north of me in the middle of Missouri, okay? Um, <laughs> these are... Uh, and these uh, may be during a time known as Rumspringa when when um, Amish um, youth are uh, allowed to sort of explore the world around them. We, the, the Old Order Amish in uh, the middle of Missouri do not do Rumspringa ever. So, um, uh, so at any rate, uh, but uh, you also have Mennonites who uh, will do a fortnight dance. Um, you have uh, Mormons who are... Uh, Talking and uh, doing uh, have a lot of humor involved in terms in terms of there and and uh, teasing you know teasing their boyfriend before before a gal goes off on her mission for instance and things like that Um, or a self-described gal who just loves Jesus. but you also have uh, Uyghur Muslim minorities in China who have found ways to use TikTok to be able to show the persecution that they have faced and um, family disappearances. Um, as one writer asks when writing about this intersection of religion and TikTok, quote, will TikTok get children back to church, synagogues, mosques, and temple? or even just get them to identify with a defined religious identity, it's unlikely. But while it's doubtful an app can reverse declining religious belief among young adults, it's certainly the case that today's lingua franca is parlayed via social media, memes, and viral videos.
0: Thanks for listening. For the Center. For Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia, I'm Derek Lemons. This lecture was delivered at the 2020 Southeastern Regional Meeting of the American Academy of Religion. Thank you to Lily Baldwin, who edited this podcast, and to the John Templeton Foundation for funding the work of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology.